Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we discuss cases that involve corruption and negligence from the people that we are expected to trust. These cases range from the police ignoring protocols to corporation placing people's lives in jeopardy in order to maximize profit. Today, I'm drinking some white wine. How about you, Jane? I'm drinking a cranberry shandy today. And today we'll be talking about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. But before we get into the experiment itself, let's get some background information on syphilis, the infection. So syphilis is a bacterial infection transmitted through sexual intercourse that has similar symptoms in both men and women. In its early or primary stages, it can be difficult to recognize. Symptoms develop within the first two weeks of transmission and start with a small bump or sore on the genitals, but location can vary. Secondary syphilis includes skin rashes, swollen lymph nodes, and fever. If it goes untreated, syphilis can progress to tertiary syphilis, which can affect the heart, brain, and other organs of the body and even lead to death. Syphilis was a common infection that afflicted people of all races and classes and was highly stigmatized. In the disease's early days, each country whose population was affected by the infection blamed the neighboring and sometimes enemy countries for the outbreak. So the inhabitants of today's Italy, Germany, and United Kingdom named syphilis the French disease, and the French named it the Neapolitan disease, and the Russians named it the Polish disease, and so on and so forth. The disease had been around for 400 to 500 years without any cure or treatment. In the early 20th century, syphilis was a public health crisis in the United States. A charity called the Julius Rosenwald Fund came to the United States Public Health Service to start a project to improve the health of African Americans in the South and in turn combat the spread of syphilis. The Rosenwald Fund was a charity supportive of education and health care for African Americans. But in 1929, the Great Depression began and the Rosenwald Fund had to cut its funds for the treatment program. The director of the U.S. Public Health Service, Dr. Telefero Clark proposed salvaging the project by investigating the course of untreated syphilis and felt people of different races would be affected by syphilis differently. In 1932, the Public Health Service, along with the Tuskegee Institute of Alabama, which was the most prominent black college at the time, began their work. The study was known as the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. Which brings us to where our case begins. The study took place in Macon County, Alabama, in an area known as the Black Belt, due to its fertile soil and large number of black sharecroppers, who happened to be an economic backbone for the county. Despite being a vital part of the economy, many were impoverished and illiterate. Macon County was found to have the highest rate of endemic infection, 36% of the total black population. It was reportedly easy to get participants since most African Americans in the area did not have access to medical care at the time, and the county in general did not have great access to medicine since it had few doctors and just two hospitals. The study began with 600 Black male participants, 399 with second-stage syphilis, and 201 without the disease to serve as a control group. None of these men had given informed consent which is a process for getting permission before conducting a healthcare intervention on a person. This process is necessary to make sure patients are aware of the risks associated with medical processes or experimental treatments. Dr. Oliver C. Wenger feared that full disclosure would lead to their non-cooperation. The men didn't really know what they were being treated for, 
What researchers did say is that the men were getting treatment for bad blood, a local term for different ailments, including anemia, fatigue, and syphilis. In exchange for their participation, the men received free medical care, meals, and burial insurance. The study was meant to last six to nine months, and participants would be given a treatment plan after the study ended. In reality, it lasted 40 years. After the first year of the study ended, Dr. Raymond Wallander lobbied for the study to continue and shape the policies that lasted for the duration of the study. By 1934, the first major study on the effects of syphilis were published. During the course of the study, men with syphilis were given aspirin and mercury treatments, which were not very helpful. Mercury, however, was a standard treatment before a more reliable treatment was found. The men were also subject to x-rays, blood work, scans, and spinal taps, which are incredibly painful. Because of this, men stopped showing up for testing and treatments. To entice them back in, researchers had nurses drive men to their treatments. Then, in 1941, the United States entered World War II, and many men participating in the study signed up to serve in the military or were drafted. The United States military does standard physicals and health tests for recruits, including STI checks. Any recruits shown to have an STI, including syphilis, were treated with penicillin, which was proven to be a popular treatment for the disease and other infections. To avoid men from the Tuskegee experiment being treated and having their syphilis cured, the Public Health Service had the men removed from the draft list. By 1947, penicillin had proven to be the most effective treatment for syphilis and rates of the disease were falling nationwide. Yet, none of the men participating in the study were ever given penicillin by the researchers. Researchers argued that ending the study would be unethical, and they refused to treat the men all in the name of science. Dr. Clark complained about treatment being costly and even wrote a colleague in defense of the use of deception in calling the spinal taps treatment, saying, quote, These Negroes are very ignorant and easily influenced by things that would be of minor significance in a more intelligent group. End quote. The Nuremberg trials, which were held to bring Nazi war criminals to justice, were being held around the same time. From the trials came the Nuremberg Code, a set of 10 ethical principles for human experimentation put in place to protect human test subjects to the cruelty and exploitation faced by prisoners of concentration camps. Elements of the code include voluntary consent being essential, subjects should be able to end their participation at any time, and no experiment can be conducted if it is believed to cause death or disability. These rules didn't stop the American researchers, who didn't think the Nuremberg Codes applied to them. So the study continued, and in 1957, the Center for Disease Control, or CDC, took over from the Public Health Service. Then, in 1966, Peter Buxton, an immigrant whose family fled Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia, became a venereal disease investigator for the Public Health Service. He learned of the Tuskegee experiment and wrote a scathing report comparing the syphilitic damage the men were allowed to endure to Nazi experimentation. Doctors involved, of course, defended the study, claiming the men were volunteers and that the study had value for physicians and the treatment might have side effects. But Buxton continued to fight for research subjects' rights. In 1972, Buxton spoke with Jean Heller, a young journalist from the Associated Press, who broke the story in July of the same year. The public was outraged and Senator Ted Kennedy held congressional hearings on the experiment. 
the public health service claimed they had done nothing wrong and were just furthering science. The study officially ended in October 1972. Penicillin was eventually given to the study's survivors as well as spouses and children they had infected. Congressional hearings around the experiment were held in 1973 and led to a total overhaul of the health, education, and welfare rules concerning work with human subjects. The National Research Act was passed in response to the experiment and ethics advisory boards were created for scientific research. A hearing was held and it was concluded the knowledge gained was sparse compared to the risks for the subjects. In 1974, Fred Gray filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of the study's participants. The participants settled out of court for $10 million. The U.S. government agreed to provide medical benefits and cover the cost of burial services. In 1975, the wives and dependents were included in this settlement. Then, in 1979, the Belmont Report was created to protect human subjects in clinical trials and research studies. It made informed consent U.S. law. Finally, in 1997, then-President Bill Clinton formally apologized to the survivors and their families on behalf of the U.S. government, saying the United States government did something that was profoundly morally wrong, clearly racist. The Tuskegee Institute claimed to have no knowledge of the ethical issues of the study, and Fred Gray said the doctors and institute were also victims. He argued that a prominent black institution, very much dependent upon white philanthropy, could not afford in the 1930s to risk antagonizing the U.S. government by refusing to participate in a public health service activity of this kind. Many doctors involved defended the study even after it was forced to end. In total, 20 participants died directly from syphilis, over 100 died from complications of syphilis, 40 wives were infected, and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. In 2004, the last study participant died, and in 2009, the last widow died. No doctors or researchers were ever prosecuted for their roles in the experiment. The Tuskegee study is perhaps the most enduring wound in American health science. For this week, we wanted to honor the participants of this study for their sacrifice and for seeking justice for their mistreatment, as well as Fred Gray for really fighting to make sure that they had justice. And we also wanted to thank Peter Buxton and Jean Heller, whose whistleblowing and journalism exposed the atrocities and racism of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and ultimately changed American history and scientific research. Del, do you think the doctors that participated in this study should have been prosecuted? That's a hard question. So a part of me wants to say yes. You know, you did something wrong. You did something that was clearly racist. But on the other hand, it wasn't illegal at the time. And it definitely squarely fit into the Jim Crow type policies that were allowed at the time. So while by today's standard, they should have been prosecuted by the standards of the time, no. Yeah, I think I do think they should have been prosecuted. Um, But like you're saying, when the study started, they really unfortunately weren't doing anything wrong. I think, though, after the Nuremberg trials once and the Nuremberg Code came into place, they clearly ignored that. They knew they shouldn't have been doing what they were doing, but they just thought it didn't apply to them. But for those last years, for once the Nuremberg Code was in place, I definitely think they should have been prosecuted or penalized somehow. I think the issue with that is in a lot of cases, 
they look at whether you're doing it on your own people or people of another country. And I think that generally countries get a lot of leeway over what they're allowed to do to their own people. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I was just telling my mom this recently, how I feel like I just wish someone could, like in modern times, you know, with all the political unrest, I just wish someone would come in and like hold the U.S. accountable every once in a while for how it treats its citizens, whether, I don't know, it's the U.N. or someone just coming in like a third party, a trusted third party, just saying like, what the hell is going on here? Like, you need to stop. I definitely agree with you. I think the issue always is because of who we are as a nation, we always built in a cheat code for ourselves. So If you think of the WHO and the fact that we're the only country that can leave it. No other country can leave the WHO, but we, the United States, can. And if you look at the UN, well, in order to get anything done, it would need to get past the Security Council and each member has a automatic veto. Well, guess who's on the Security Council? The United States is. And of course, we're going to veto anything that has to do with, you know, painting us in a bad light. I love that you said cheat code, and I want to just give this nerdy fact about myself. For two years in high school, I did Model UN, where it's a bunch of, in my case, high school students got together for like pretend UN summits, and we all represented different countries. And the second year I did it, I was initially supposed to be on the Security Council being the United States, but I got too scared and I chickened out and I switched and I really regret it. And I wish I had done that because that would have been so major, like you're saying. And the reason why bringing the WHO up is so important is that when it comes to making sure that countries are held to account when it comes to human experimentation, they would be the ones doing it. And when bringing up trying to make sure that any experimentation that involves people is ethical. I think it's important to bring up that historically, medical systems have used minorities without their consent for the advancement of medical theories, technologies, and institutions have really used minority bodies to strengthen systems of injustice. So, for example, Slaves were often sold for medical experimentation. And the slaves didn't have any rights, and they were definitely not able to provide informed consent. Yeah, informed consent like wasn't even on people's minds back then. Um, and one of those people that did get um, slaves sold to him was J. Marion Sims, who many called the father of modern gynecology. I think he invented the speculum and a few other things. Um, but he performed painful experiments without any anesthesia on enslaved black women who did not or really could not give consent. He conducted surgeries on a number of women, but the only ones that we have names of are Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy. And I have heard that he did give anesthesia to white women he worked on after he kind of, I guess, like per, like bested his practices on these black women. Um, But then I've also kind of heard that he really was not fond of anesthesia and he thought some of the procedures he was doing in general weren't painful enough for someone to be given anesthesia. And something of note is there was a statue of him in Central Park and that statue was recently taken down. So bravo to everyone that worked on that. So for people wondering like, what do people use to justify these actions? Well, that can really be summed up with one term and that's scientific racism. 
And scientific racism refers to a pseudoscientific belief that there is empirical scientific evidence to support or justify racism. This includes the spreading of bogus theories of supposed Black inferiority in an attempt to rationalize slavery and centuries of social and economic discrimination. Scientific racism is not something that is really talked about, but what does come into play in an average person's minds are all the negative stereotypes that are typically associated with Black people. People really show their colors by what they assume you can and can't do. For example, they have these seemingly opposite stereotypes of Black people being really athletic, really musical, really good at dance but are also really lazy and barbaric. And I'm still not sure where that came from, but I will say that the same racial narratives that were brought against Blacks and Hispanics have also been used against Native Americans. Yeah, in the United States, um, colonizers viewed Indigenous people as barbaric. I'm sure, you know, there's other countries with Indigenous people that have been taken advantage of, like Australia and Canada, and I'm sure they viewed them in a similar way. The hypocrisy is so real, Del, and everything you were just saying about, like, which one is it? Are is this community lazy or are they athletic and they're really good? When you look at it, it's all just used to justify and just to make white people feel better, you know, to say like, you know, it's a good thing that these people are enslaved because we're doing it for their own good. You know, they can't be trusted otherwise. And, you know, maybe that would even help justify it in the mind of like some sympathizers, people that are like on the line of like, is this right to do? Is this wrong to do? And I think this all ties into understanding why Black people and other minorities feel a certain way about the institutions that have led to outcomes that are not as advantageous. And one of those institutions, because of what happened in this experiment, is the medical institution. Blacks and other minorities report higher levels of distrust in medical institutions and in scientific research. Just to give you some stats to back this up. According to the CDC, Black women are more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Black men have the lowest life expectancy in the United States. You have some anecdotal evidence that Blacks feel like the medical system ignores their pain, which is based on a false study that claims that Black people have a naturally higher pain threshold than others. Studies have shown that Black Americans are more at risk to receive lower quality care for things like cancer and HIV. I also wanted to mention the U.S. also did testing on the effects of syphilis on people in Guatemala as well. Doctors had sex workers infect prisoners, soldiers, and mentally challenged people with syphilis, and others were actually directly inoculated with syphilis, and many were given penicillin as treatment. I think the the study was to look at the effects of penicillin, but a lot of people were unaware they even had the disease. So like we saw with the Tuskegee experiment, they transferred it to their spouses and their children. The same thing happened in Guatemala. And it caused a lot of birth defects and issues for people there. And Dr. John Cutler was involved in both of these studies, actually. And he, of course, defended them well into the 90s. So again, we're seeing the U.S., government in the name of science take advantage of people of color and people that are in a place that, where they don't have the greatest rights. 
So this brings up the question, is it ethical to use the results of these experiments? I feel like it would be worse to do all this unethical stuff and then just throw out all the results because people suffered for nothing then. I feel like maybe like a happy medium would be making sure people don't profit off of the results somehow. Like they can't speak at conferences. Maybe, um, I don't know if having their work not published is the answer, but just making sure they don't profit from their work somehow. I definitely agree. I do not think that it is more ethical to completely discredit all of the research that had been done. And I think that it does more harm because then what you have to do, knowing that there's negative effects, you then have to go get informed consent from someone who you can't get it from. I understand why people don't want companies to make a profit, but I think that the only way a lot of companies will continue to do research or continue to put money into verifying research is if there is some type of compensation involved. So I think that a profit probably needs to be made, but maybe there can be a system for some you know, damages to be paid to the family. Yeah, I 100% agree. And Talking about this topic really reminds me of Henrietta Lacks. Henrietta Lacks was an African-American woman whose cancer cells are the source of the HeLa cell line, which are the first immortalized human cell line and one of the most important cell lines in medical research. Henrietta visited Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, one of the few hospitals to treat Black Americans in the 1950s, and discovered she had cervical cancer. Some of her cancer cells were taken as part of her treatment, and some of that tissue was given to a researcher without Henrietta's knowledge or consent. The researcher shared them with other scientists, and they became a workhorse of biological research. Today, work done with HeLa cells underpins much of modern medicine, and doing this without her consent was legal at the time. And while these biotech companies profited from her cells, none of this money was passed down to her family. Her family had literally no idea her cells were taken. And Henrietta did pass away um, soon after finding out she had cervical cancer, but Again, her family was never told, and they didn't ask for her family's consent when they revealed her name publicly, gave her medical records to the media, and even published her cell's genome online. You'd think they're professionals, they would, you know, care a little more, but I guess at the end of the day, you know, people are making a profit, that's the almighty dollar rules of the world, and a lot of ethics get thrown away, I think, because of that. Yeah, and one thing with this case um, that always comes up, and I think it comes up with any ethical case, and that's the trolley problem. I bring up the trolley problem, and for those that don't know, the trolley problem is simply you're on a train car and there are two tracks. The first track has a single person. Sometimes it's someone that's akin to you. Sometimes it's just someone in a vulnerable population. And you have the choice to hit that one person or to hit a train car full of people. When it comes to this cell line and what they did, I have to say that while I don't agree with everything they did, the fact that it underpins so much of what we know about medicine and it has been used to help so many people. I think I'm okay with it because while 
it's not ethical, the end result really helped a lot of people. And without that, who knows the level of damage that could have been done. And while a lot of times we hope for the wrongdoers to be the ones that have to pay the price, I'm happy that this institute stepped up and acknowledged the significant contributions that Miss Lax made. Yeah, all without even knowing it. Um, she does have that immortal life, some people like to say. I really don't think it's right that it took so long for them to get some type of compensation. Um, as far as I know, the Henrietta Lacks Foundation announced that they were getting a six-figure gift from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in Maryland um, just in October of this year. So I could be wrong in saying that they didn't get any type of compensation beforehand, um, but the president of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute did say Quote, we felt it was right to acknowledge Henrietta for the use of HeLa cells and to acknowledge that the cells were gained inappropriately, end quote. So I think that's good handling of that on the Institute's part. Um, but this brings up the question of, or the idea that many medicines stem from unethical practices. And like you were saying, Dell, it's always a question of whether or not the ends justify the means. Some people would argue that they're studying groups that are already suffering, so it doesn't really matter if they suffer anymore, which I think is pretty offensive and gross. Supporters of Henrietta Lacks did say that the use of her cells was unethical and it perpetuates injustice, again, um, against minority communities and other vulnerable communities. Some other examples of testing and experimentation on Black, Indigenous, people of color, and vulnerable communities are prisoners being forced to test malaria drugs, among other things. Um, prisoners did not have many rights even less than 100 years ago, so they tested a lot of different drugs and stuff. Um, birth control was tested on Puerto Rican women who did not have informed consent. Dr. Saul Krugman did research for a hepatitis vaccine, and in doing so, he tested and experimented on children with disabilities. Their parents did have informed consent, but it is quite controversial still, and the Little Albert experiment. Del, you were a psych major, so I'm sure you're familiar with the little Albert experiment and it tested if phobias could be conditioned in children um, they used a baby they made him like scared of furry things I think with a bunny the conditioning was never reversed for this little baby so I don't know if we know what happened to him if he was just scared of like fuzzy things and like small creatures and rabbits the rest of his life I hope not so unfortunately yeah they did a specific thing where it was furry things that he was afraid of and he was afflicted with this phobia for the rest of his life and unfortunately psychology has a long and troubled history with barbaric by today's standards experiments um the john money experiment comes to mind which was an experiment that took twins and after one of them had an accident during a vasectomy they forced that child to live as a female even though he was male. And they also, um, it involved forced play between him and his brother. And both of them ended up falling into drug abuse and both ended up dying. Questioning whether or not we should be testing on children. When we talk about that, we have to talk about the horrific research that Holocaust doctors did. Um, they heavily experimented on twins. Um, Joseph Mengel was the doctor at Auschwitz, and he exposed a lot of twins to 
disease, disfigurement, and torture under the guise of medical research. And they tested illness and human endurance and much more. I don't know if you or anyone has been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. Um, It's really chilling to be there. And they do have a small section on um, the experimentation that the people there had to endure. And it's so horrific. When I was there, there were like different TVs with some video and photographs from that. And I remember like looking at one and it was just like too much for me to even look at. The Holocaust itself was a form of eugenics and We've mentioned eugenics a few times before, but it was a commonly accepted means of protecting society from the offspring of those individuals deemed inferior or dangerous. So the poor, the disabled, the mentally ill, criminals, and people of color, um, Jewish people, gay people, gypsies. Another unethical experiment that took place were the MK Ultra experiments. And that was during the Cold War. The CIA was searching for a mind control drug to compete with the drug that they just knew the Soviet Union had. And in these cases, sometimes people knew they were being tested on, but sometimes it was citizens that just had no idea. They were given LSD and they had to participate in electric shock therapy and a few other things. Um, And we don't know how many people died because of this, either exactly from the therapies or just from complications to this experimentation that the CIA and I guess in turn the U.S. government was doing on some everyday people. The government is so fascinating over what they will and won't do. And honestly, there's not a lot of things they won't do. The CIA is notorious for having a not giving a F attitude when it comes to, you know, breaking laws and totally being unethical. MK Ultra was projected to last for 20 years and details didn't emerge until two years after it ended um, sometime in the 1970s. And so I was going to say, when you were talking about the CIA, we just recently did a live episode on the JFK assassination. And some people believe that the CIA thought that JFK was going to disband them basically for what you were saying, because they didn't give a F about rules and ethics and they just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. I'm sure they do great things, but like, just think about all the stuff that like they've done and we don't know about yet. Right. And most of the time we only find out things decades later through freedom of information requests. And that's only when they actually want to give the information. And a lot of times that information is heavily redacted. Yeah, it's almost like why even give it to us at that point? It's just a way for them to know like that they're saving their own asses. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and issues of ethics and scientific research. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Follow us on Instagram at Prime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Dale signing off. Stay safe.